0: So, if you're new here, or whether you just forgot, we currently are doing a book study uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 uh, Samuel is a book in the Old Testament, and it tells the story of Israel moving from a theocracy to a monarchy. And it tells the stories of characters like Samuel, who was the last like, judge of the theocracy that Israel was, as well as a prophet. It also tells the stories of kings that a lot of people are familiar with, like King Saul and King David, but we believe that 1 Samuel is more than just the history of Israel going from a theocracy to a monarchy, that in these stories in 1 Samuel, the nature of God is revealed, the nature of humanity is revealed, and there's wisdom for how we as humans relate to God. Uh, And so this series goal, the goal of this series is to see that truth in these stories and to not just see that here on Sundays, but to teach you guys how to see that as you go and do your own studies throughout the week. Our goal is to teach you not just to teach you how to fish, not just give you a fish, but to teach you how to fish or at the very least how to enjoy your time out on the lake a little bit more if you don't catch any fish. Uh, So we hope that this spurs you on and invigorates you uh, to Monday through Saturday, go and implement the things that we're kind of walking through with you on Sunday mornings right now. Our prayer would be that you are going, like if you don't know where to go, spend some time in 1 Samuel. I mean, we're gonna be spending another like two months in the book of 1 Samuel, and we are not going to hit every passage in that book. So take these tools and in your week, uh, work through the book with us. Next week, we'll hit chapter Eight, and then after that, I think, will it be in chapter 15. So like one chapter every other day if you wanted to. That's just an invitation. You don't have to go do that. But so each week, we're trying to give you guys different tools, whether you've realized that or not, from, you know, uh, looking at the difference between genre. How do we interact with narrative versus poetry? What does that look like? Uh, Last week, Josh kind of really well took us through slowing down and really sitting in one little block of text and looking at all the details and kind of holding a magnifying glass up to the text. And these are all tools to help you kind of understand what message is being conveyed, what truths are being conveyed in the text Today uh, is going to be another kind of tool that we're giving to you. Instead of being real deep down in magnifying glass zoomed in on one small section, we're actually going to zoom out a little bit and take a little bit of a higher view and look at two different stories kind of next to each other. We're going to look at two stories side by side, compare and contrast, and see what the differences and similarities in these stories are trying to speak to us. So uh, if you've been here, you know, be prepared to interact. I will ask questions later, uh, and feel free to raise your hand and actually answer those questions. In fact, we invite you and encourage you to do that. Uh, So with that being said, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Feel free to go ahead and turn there if you've got a Bible in front of you. (coughs) While you're turning there, just kind of recap what happened last week. Uh, Samuel, the guy, the namesake of this book, heard the voice of God for the first time, but he didn't realize it was God. And he kept coming in to his uh, mentor, Eli, and being like, hey, you called? And Eli, realizing that this was God speaking to Samuel, coached him through how to listen to God. So then Samuel and God kind of... God gives this word to Samuel, and it's a not-so-great word uh, for Eli and his sons. And then Eli coaches Samuel through how to share that word with people, even when it's not so great, because it was a word kind of against Eli and his household and his negligence as a father and his wickedness of his sons. So that's kind of where we pick up, is right after that story. We're going to pick up in... Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19 is where we're starting off. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel." Sweet. So now uh, Samuel is established as a prophet. If you remember last week, at the beginning of chapter three, there's the statement that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, setting up this problem where the voice of God was a rare occurrence. But now here at the end of this chapter, we have Samuel, who is a, established as a prophet, who is regularly bringing the voice of God to the people of Israel. Another way that you could translate that phrase, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, is it almost has the sense of the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. So it was this continual conversation with Samuel. So that problem solved. All right, and so we're going to jump back in, second part of verse 1 in chapter 4, all the way through verse 11. After this, I'm going to have some questions. So take notes, think about what we're doing as we're going Ah, all right. Uh, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who, called about 4, 000, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to camp, the elders of Israel said, "'Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines?' Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of he- the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened to us before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay. Uh, Wow. So I'm just going to pause and pose a question to you guys. What questions does this bring up for you? Was there anything as we were reading through that uh, was made you curious or just brought a question to mind? Just feel free to pose that question here. I'm not going to answer it necessarily, but we're just starting a train of thought. So yeah. Anything uh, any questions? Yeah, in the back. Sean. Yeah, so I know that you know the last stars were gonna to die through you know the same kind of herd, but it was interesting that they 30,000 30,0 Israelites were killed and the Arkham government was captured. Uh I, don't know, I, should, I find that interesting as to why you know it's gotta swing the pin from that far that way just for Sense of two people. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, uh, Samuel had received this word against Eli and his sons in Eli's house, but it, at the moment, kind of seems like that was going outside of Eli's house, that it wasn't just Eli's sons here that are receiving that, but it almost, in a sense, does feel like Israel is receiving some sort of judgment for uh, the house of Eli, yeah good question. Anyone have anything else? All right. Uh, A question that I had is like, does this seem out of the blue to anyone a little bit from what we've been doing in 1 Samuel so far? All the stories we've done from uh, Samuel's mom to Samuel. Samuel's established as a prophet, and then it just chops right there. Now we have this story about a war going on. Uh, It seems like a bit of a left turn in what's going on uh and then does anyone else feel that or is that just me yeah sweet uh and then I've one final one question that I do want to pose to you guys before we move on we're just not going to camp out here a long time we're just setting up so uh what does Israel turn to to save them from the Philistines in this story where are they seeking their salvation from the Philistines? Yeah, from the ark. They get defeated and they say, hey, let's go grab the ark and bring that out because that will save us as if the ark is some totem of power that's going to come and defeat their enemy for them. Great. Uh, so now we're going to flip over to chapter seven, to our second story, to that we're going to kind of... Hold up next to this one and compare. While you're turning there, I'm going to give a little bit of a fill-in of what's happened between the story we just read and the one we're about to read. So the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken to uh, one of the Philistine cities where they set it up in a temple of one of their pagan gods, and the city that the Ark is in gets afflicted by plagues. And so they are like, we're not going to deal with that, and send it to another Philistine town. And the same thing kind of happens there. Plagues begin uh, affecting the people there. They send it to another town, another town, another town, rinse, repeat, until they're kind of just like, all right, we're done with this. Uh, This is not worth it at all. So they decide they're going to send it back. They load it up on a cart with a couple oxen and an offering, and they're like, all right, we're just going to let the oxen go. We're not going to tell them where to go. And if they go back to Israel, we'll know that it was the hand of God that was against us. But if they don't go back to Israel, this was just one really weird coincidence. So they send it back and the uh, oxen do indeed go back to Israel. So when it comes into Israel, they see it, they take the oxen and they sacrifice them to the Lord. And then they send to the Levites in a a place called Kiriath-Jerim to come and get the Ark and take it back to Kiriath-Jerim, which seems to be the new place where the tabernacle or temple system is happening. Seemingly, Shiloh was destroyed in the battles of the stories that we just read. Uh, So that's kind of where we're left off here in picking up in chapter seven, verse one. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark of the Lord was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, and a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods from you." and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, "'Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you.' So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord." And fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went up out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Beth-kar. All right, so immediately, does anyone notice any similarities between these two stories that we're looking at? Fighting Fighting the Philistines, yeah, really, it's kind of, a, in a way, a little bit of a repeat story In that, but yeah. Anything else? Any other similarities? It's like Samuel gives a word to Israel, and then like the word comes true. And like in this story, though, they listen to like what he has to say, and he's like, he's like, get rid of your idols, and they do, and then they succeed. It's like whoa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's my next question: is differences. But what? So we're gonna get there. That was great. Any other similarities that you notice? Cool. That's the big one. Is the Philistines. There's other little things I didn't actually include it in this text. If you go a little further, there's another mention of Ebenezer. So this is happening in the same place as the first story, uh, as well as this thundering shoutings uh, kind of theme as well. So the similarities between these two stories are calling us to examine them next to each other, to compare, contrast, and ask questions as to why there's these differences. So what differences do you notice between the two? So as you mentioned, in the first story, Samuel's not even mentioned, really. He's established as a prophet, and then we have the story of the Israelites going out to war, as you mentioned. They didn't even Talk to Samuel. This is the first time we hear Samuel talk since the end of chapter 3. Any other differences? Yeah, 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 Israel wins this time. That's a big difference. A thing I noticed was in the first one they kind of used the covenant almost like an idol. Yes. Yes. And then this time, they used God as what was giving them the power. To yes. Forward. Yeah. So in the first story, they parade the ark out as if it's some sort of idol that has power itself. And in the second story, they actually come before God. That's beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, seems like Samuel is much more present than Eli was. You know, in what, the stories that I kind of skipped over, we know that Eli is sitting back in the town just waiting to see what happens. Worried about the ark, actually, and not worried about other things. Yeah, great. Anyone else have any differences they want to point out? Sweet. Yeah, so the the big differences that, yeah, we see are... One, Samuel is involved. He was not involved in the first one, even though he was a judge and prophet over Israel. He's not involved at the beginning. And in this story, he's involved. And Israel has a completely different heart posture, we see. Instead of trusting in their own might and their own strength and parading the Ark of the Covenant out into the battlefield, uh, they come before the Lord. They come to Samuel and the Philistines are defeated in this one versus the Israelites. So what claim is being made by the differences in these stories? What changed? We see these differences, but what's really going on behind these surface level differences? Uh, does anyone have, want to venture a guess at what's going on? Yeah. They relied on God. Israel returned to the Lord with all their heart. That's that call that Samuel had there at the beginning of chapter 7, is to return to the Lord with all of your heart. In verse 3, Samuel is calling Israel back. The the language he's using is calling back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's calling back to this prayer that the Israelite people pray every morning and every evening. He's calling them back to what God asked of them in the beginning, in that prayer that if you grew up in a church tradition, you may know as the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what Samuel is calling them back to. He's calling them back to remember and to love God with all their heart, with everything they have. Uh, So, the heart in Hebrew thought is a little different than the way we think about the heart. It is the seat of emotion, like we use the term heart, but it's there's more to it in Hebrew thought to the heart, to the levav. Um, the heart is also your mind. It is the seat of thought and intellect. It's where you think and you perceive things. The heart is also the seat of your desires. Your desires are born in your heart. It's very biblical language to hear, so-and-so desired this or that in his or her heart. To quote the Bible project, uh, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So we make choices in our heart born out of the desires of our heart. Loving someone with all of your heart to a Hebrew was more than mere emotional affection, but also had to do with your mental capacity, with every thought, with all of your understanding, and with every bit of your desire and with every choice that you make. To love someone with all of your heart uh, is all of those things kind of encapsulated into one. Samuel is calling Israel back to the words of Moses as they're standing on the Jordan River with uh, as their ancestors are standing on the Jordan River about to enter into the land that they now possess where the story of first Samuel is taking place this is why Samuel calls to return to the Lord with all of their heart is answered by getting rid of their idols and serving God alone because if he doesn't have all of your hearts then does he really have any of it? It's a question I've kind of been asking myself as I've been working through this teaching. Uh, If he doesn't have all of it, does he have any of it really? So when Samuel sees the dumpsters full of Baals and Ashtaroth, he realizes that the Israelites are actually serious about turning back to the Lord with all of their hearts. So then he calls them into this kind of national prayer conference at Mizpah, where all of the nation gathers together and prays and fasts and confesses before the Lord. So this Mizpah is this beautiful picture of repentance, of Israel crying out before the Lord. It's beautiful. It's extraordinary really. And I feel like I need to take a minute and just let that sink in and imagine The entire nation of Israel gathered together, all of them just crying out to the Lord, praying to the Lord. Samuel praying on their behalf. They're all fasting together, confessing their sins to one another and to the Lord. This is, uh, I think, a picture of genuine repentance on on the people on the behalf of Israel, for the people of Israel, whatever. Um it's this picture of genuine repentance, of Israel returning to the Lord with all their heart. I think this is evidenced by the rest of the story. In verse six, it says, Samuel judged Israel there. And the judged there is he to like perceive and to Uh, bring about a verdict on the behalf of Israel. And if you notice, there is no conviction. He judges them, but there's no conviction. And if maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into that one line, I think verse 8 furthers the fact that Israel's repentance, their return was genuine and true with all of their heart. That after hearing about the Philistines, they don't. Uh, go out in their strength and their might this time. They don't parade out the Ark of the Covenant as if it is some totem of power that is going to save them from their enemies. They come to the Lord. They come before the Lord, and they come to Samuel with one prayer request, just one. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may deliver us. So God answers. God does battle for Israel. He does battle on their behalf. Now hear me, what I'm not saying and what I don't think the text is saying is that God is here to fight the metaphorical Philistine armies in your life. Uh, I don't think that's what the text is getting at either. What I am saying and what I think the text is leading us to see is that God opposes the proud and draws near to the humble. That when we stop looking to our own might, to our own pride and arrogance to help us prevail. And when we begin to turn to the Lord with all of our heart, when he is the only thing that our heart desires, and every aspect of our life begins to flow from that place of allegiance and affection to him, when we're faced with insurmountable troubles, and our first reaction is to cry out to the Lord— that moves him. He cannot help but be moved by the prayers of a heart that is fully devoted to him. God wants a fully devoted heart, a heart where all of our emotions, all of our mental capacities, all of our desires are bound up in our love and allegiance to him. I don't... uh, really have a real way to end this teaching. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to invite us into our time of communion, just do some reflection and prayer for a few minutes before we jump back into worship. Uh, you can throw that last slide up, Luke. So we've got some, some questions here and prompts to just work our way through. Uh, together or alone. So you can do this alone, circle up with one or two other people if you'd like, but to just take a moment and ask yourself, like, do you resonate with one or both of these pictures of Israel from the story in chapter four or the story in chapter seven? And is there anything in your heart that is holding you back from fully turning to the Lord? And to just take a moment and process any thoughts or uh, feelings in prayer with the Lord and with a friend, if you so desire. And then just a final invitation to pray the words of David, who we will meet here in a couple weeks within our story. But in one of David's Psalms, at the very end of Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I just invite us all over communion to just pray the words of David after him, a man who was a man after God's own heart. These are his words. And there's this invitation to pray them along with him. So there's communion underneath the chairs. Every other chair in the center aisle, there's a bowl of little communion cups. You guys can take those and pass them down as we begin some time of just uh, prayer and reflection and uh, communion together.